Hey folks, welcome to another episode of American History Untucked. This is your host, David Zilkinet. Uh, my guest for this show is Liz Covert, who is the host of a uh, relatively new podcast, uh, Ben Franklin's World, uh, which is a podcast about early American history. Uh, Liz has been putting the show out now for a few months and has done a very admirable job about getting a regular digest of episodes out, a far better job than than I have with my podcast. Um, Liz has a PhD from UC Davis, um, where she studied under Alan Taylor, uh, and decided after finishing graduate school to to do a kind of version of public history, trying to doing things with a blog and with her podcast. Uh, and so this is a show in which we're talking about uh, podcasting and what it means to be a podcast doing a history podcast with a with an academic background there are obviously tons of podcasts out there by people who love history but don't really have the you know the academic training uh that uh, a phd affords you so we talk about that we talk about her research in the her study into the early uh, history of uh early uh new york state and the ways in which uh people from new england colonized uh upstate new york uh, and we talk about snow because she's in Boston and has been hit by tons of snowstorms in the past few weeks. And I've been enjoying the uh, blue sky and sunny weather here in uh, Scotland, uh, which usually has much better weather than uh, most of the East Coast of the United States right now. Here's my conversation with Liz Covert. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you for having me, David. This, I guess, is the first time I've had a fellow uh, podcaster on the show. So this is very exciting for me. I are a very, I guess, small community of, uh, academic podcasters. Yeah. It does seem to be growing a little bit though. Yeah. But I think, you know, my show started, I guess, uh, about a year ago and yours start started in October. So I think we're still, it's a, it's a small, but growing community. First things first though, you're in Boston. How bad is the snow there? All right. I grew up in New Hampshire and I can remember snowbanks well over my head. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm accustomed to winter, but I am ready to throw up the flag. We're getting another blizzard Saturday um, and another snowstorm possibly next Wednesday. And there's to give you an idea of how much snow, there is a, an infographic circulating around Twitter that has all of the Boston sports stars, like the tallest sports stars on each <laughs> team um, and saying how much how much snow you know do we have? And so last storm, we passed Big Poppy, who's 6'4". <laughs> and the last guy on the, on the list is Kelly Olenek, who plays for the Boston Celtics. And he, he's around seven foot or just over seven foot. And we think with this next storm, we will be over Ken- Kelly Olenek. Jeez. So there's That's, a lot of snow. Yeah. Well, I'm used to a lot of snow. I you know, uh, grew up in parts of New England and New York and uh, spent five years in North Dakota. But the pictures look... Uh, Generally scary. So, are you safe? There's no danger of like the roof collapsing in and on during our talk. No, no, we are we are good. Uh, my partner Tim shoveled our roof the other oh. day. <laughs> That's very brave of him. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, your show, Ben Franklin's World. Uh, you've got 16 episodes, I guess, that have come out thus far. Um, and I, I guess you've got. I, I saw recently you had 75,000 downloads, which is really remarkable for a you know show that's not all that old so congratulations on that thank you uh the show i guess started in what was it october of, of 2014 yes i released my first four episodes plus a pilot that just explained the show on mm-hmm. october 7th and so i guess uh, 
curious about what what drove you then to to, to start a podcast. I wish I could tell you it was one thing, uh, but I think it was just a combination of ideas. Uh, one idea uh, is why I went to study history in graduate school. Um, when I told my parents as an undergrad at Penn State that I was going to be a history major during my freshman year, they did not take that news well. They're like, a history major? What are you going to do with a history degree? So I tried to you know, assuage some of their fears by getting an internship with the Boston National Historical Park. And um, that turned out to be a great experience. They brought me on as a seasonal ranger, and I worked for them for, for four or five uh, different summers. And sometime in the early 2000s, David McCullough published John Adams. And just the visitors we would get into the park or the conversations I would have around campus um, or, you know, in just other random settings, everyone was talking about John Adams. People who didn't even like history were reading John Adams because everybody was talking about it. And I said, boy, I would love to be able to get people to talk about history the way David McCullough just did by publishing John Adams. Um, so I knew McCullough didn't have a, a professional historian background. He has more of an editorial journalistic background. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wondered, you know, what could one do if they had, if they were trained as a professional historian? So, that, so there's that aspect of wanting to convey history. Um, another thing that happened that helped contribute to the show is after I decided I did not want to be an academic, right after I finished um, graduate school, or at least to be a traditional academic, um, my partner said, well, if we're not waiting for some job offer from Timbuktu, <laughs> I, need to I need to change jobs. And um, he got a job with Google and we opted to, to move back to Boston, uh, an area I grew up in. And uh, so he works for Google and I became an urban dweller for the first time in my life. And I just found myself walking everywhere. Um, so as I was trying to figure out how I was going to make my, my work situation work, you know, being an independent scholar, trying to find a public history career, um, something that would fit me. I read this book by Todd Henry called The Accidental Creative, and he talked about listening to podcasts. So I became a, a podcast listener. I started with Todd Henry's Accidental Creative, and then I was hooked. I started downloading podcasts about social media, about entrepreneurship, about writing. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe I should start listening to some history podcasts. Um, and there are some out there, but there were none in early American history, which is my big passion. And there were none that were really making use of professional historians. Yeah. Um, Most of them are, of, are by like popular people who just want to, you know, have an interest but don't have any training or, or don't have any, you know, familiarity with the scholarship. Right. They're really passionate about the subject, but they want to talk about it and lecture to you. And I was like, I don't want to be lectured to. I already know about this stuff. I want to learn something interesting. Um, so then I had this idea, well, if nobody else is doing it, I'm going to start an early American history podcast. And I'm going to help my colleagues bring their work to the public, both academic and public historians. We're going to create a wider awareness about their work. Hmm. Um, so I got that idea about 18 months ago. And then like a good historian, I went and researched it, researched it for a year before I, I started podcasting. Okay. You, you were much more diligent about that than I was. Um, I think I went from idea in the grocery store to putting on a show in about you know two weeks. Um, <laughs> There's something to be said about that, though. <laughs> so, so what 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 podcast did you listen to that you sort of tried to view this as inspirations or, or models for, for for Ben Franklin's world? So I, I checked out uh, Twenty Eight Minute History, um, 
and there's some guys, they must be in England by the accent. Um, and they do a very great job of offering short podcast series about events. So I listened to one on the Cold War um, and they, they really condense the history of the Cold War and summarize it in a way that you can understand. But it was very much a lecture format. Um, but then I noticed that the social media entrepreneurial podcasts, they were all doing interviews. And I found those conversations to be much more engaging the, than one person talking at me. Um, so I started researching, you know, what other people were doing in history, found that they weren't really doing the interview format, mm -hmm. um, and then adapted the interview format that I liked about these other shows to create Ben Franklin's world. Okay. So uh, you've had, I guess, 16 episodes thus far. How, how has the show changed over that, you know, it's a relatively short lifespan, but how, how have you, what have you learned in the process of making those, those episodes that have sort of changed how you approach the whole thing? I think the biggest thing that's changed is my confidence. If you were to listen to my very first episode, the first episode I really recorded was with Tom Foster, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote this wonderful book, Sex and the Founding Fathers. And I was just so nervous. And to make matters worse, you know, I had a decent mic, not the best mic. I've upgraded my mic since. Um, they started gut renovating the house the row house right next door to ours. So all you could hear was banging all day. Mm -hmm. um, and we live on the top floor and it was raining. So my partner, Tim, got me a room at, at the Google office to try and make it quiet. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can hear people walking around upstairs sure. and dropping things. So, you know, I learned, okay, well, I need to create some sort of soundproof environment, which I did. And then I just got a better mic um, so I could podcast at home. Um, so there were like the tech and practical aspects, but um, I used to prepare these question sheets and I still prepare the question sheets. I read each book that I interview about a book thoroughly or research the historic site or exhibit we're talking about. And I send, you know, like a list of questions to guide the conversation. Only they weren't guiding the conversation. They really were the conversation. Um, but about episode 13 or 14, I, I was like, okay, I can do this. And I start to ad lib a bit. Yeah. Um, so that makes me feel better. Um, and the other thing I learned is I tend to be a perfectionist and oftentimes I feel like my brain works faster than my mouth. So, you know, I would stutter a lot or, ah, or, um, and it was just like trying to get the ideas out of my brain, you know, mm -hmm. you know, from my yeah. brain out of my mouth. So I was really stressed out about it. Uh, it's why I have a professional audio editor, um, because I am too much perfectionist to edit my own show. So he would release episodes and there would be ahs and ums, or I might stumble on something, but nobody cares. They're just yeah. like, Oh, you're a human being. Um, so I've learned that it's okay, you know, to on uh, um, every once in a while or to pause and think about what I want to say. So. So you mentioned, you know, getting a new mic and having somebody help with, with the, with the audio editing. Um, you know, one of the think the the barriers for podcasting for I think lots of people is is they're kind of intimidated by the technical aspect of it. Um, you know, I had somebody email me recently who somebody who has a blog and uh, you know, who's an academic historian. She's like, I'm interested in podcasting. What do I have to do? And I sort of explain what I did, which is, you know, probably uh, more technical than it needs to be sometimes. Uh, and uh, the response I got was that, oh, that that's a lot scarier than I thought it would be. Maybe I should rethink this. Um, 
for you, what's, what's the sort of technical process? How much of a hurdle was that sort of jumping into the whole thing? Well, you know, as I said, I, I researched the show for about a year before I put it out. Um, I wasn't that intimidated, and part of that is living with a, a Google engineer. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would help. Uh, so if I had any questions about things, you know, I could I could ask Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, but podcasting, you, the real story about podcasting, as you know, is it can be as simple or as complicated as you want it to be. Um, I have really lofty goals with my show. Yeah. When I When I started my show, I knew I wanted something that sounded like you know, AM, FM radio as a podcast. Um, That's just what I felt I wanted to, you know, the kind of show I wanted to produce. Mm -hmm. But you could do, you know, so I have, I have the Heel PR40 microphone and I have a boom. It looks like a, you know, a studio mic and I have a little mixer. That's complicated. If you wanted to start a podcast, you could get a headset and just podcast from your iPhone, just record yourself from your iPhone or your your android or whatever i mean it can be as complicated or as simple as you want to make it yeah i mean i think some people get sort of even your show is very very polished and that's one of the things i think is very interesting about is you have like an introductory like you know uh, voiceover and the website's very very polished and i think sometimes that sort of scares people especially when you start to talk about feeds and how feeds work and all these other kinds of things but it really i think you're right it's really is complicated as you want it to make it um and my people love my website i love my website that's wordpress i didn't have anybody custom design it i went out and found a uh a podcast specific theme that i liked um it's a premium theme so it wasn't free i did pay for it i think the whole site cost me about a hundred dollars um and then you know i i put it together wordpress is is fortunately not that difficult to learn so i wouldn't I would say people shouldn't let the tech bar them from starting. You can always upgrade, improve yeah. as you go. Yeah. And I guess there are lots of you know, services that aren't all that expensive that uh, can help with sort of the back end stuff. Um, I tend to do all that myself, but that's just because I'm a masochist. Um, but uh, so you made this choice, I guess, uh, after graduate school. Not to become a traditional academic historian and go and do some public history of, of various different kinds, including the, including the podcast. What, what was it that, that either pushed you away from the, the traditional survivory tower route and, and towards this more sort of public facing kinds of history? You know, I, I think the park service really opened my eyes to public history and I never lost that passion with, you know, to talk about history with just people who were interested about it. And I did teach and I liked teaching, but I always loved the research and writing aspect more. Um, I, I, I'm still trying, you know, it's been three and three and a half years or almost three and a half years and I'm still trying to articulate it, but something about traditional academia just never seemed to fit right with me. Um, and now I think it's because I like to experiment with history in ways that most academic institutions don't support. You know, um, most academic institutions wouldn't necessarily support a podcast or give you time to, to produce a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, how do you get your exhibit, you know, featured in the local newspaper, you know, so you have to study new media and that sort of thing. And I, I think the profession's coming around and I haven't ruled out a traditional academic career later, but I also just really like to interact with people on both sides. And there is this, there is unfortunately a divide. I hope it's narrowing mm-hmm. between academic and public historians. And I tell people, I, I really do. I live with one foot in academia 
one foot in public history. I attend events for both. Um, I try to support both. And um, it's just a world I feel comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Now, did you get any training when you were in graduate school to, to do this? Or was this stuff you all sort of you picked up on your own uh, you know, since, since leaving graduate school? Most of it I picked up on my own. Um, you know, I'm sure there were things in graduate school that, that helped prepare me. You know, certainly um, Alan Taylor helped me learn how to write. You know, I would not be able to write all the freelance articles I do and get them published mm -hmm. um, if, I hadn't, if I hadn't worked with him. You know, and he, he helped me hone my research skills, which I'm, I'm forever grateful for. And, you know, working with the Park Service and doing tours through Boston by foot you know, it helps me connect with the public. So in academia, we tend to get caught up in what theory of this and who's, you know, researching this minutiae, you know, in this field. And that is all work that um, and discussions that we should be having. But it's not they're not discussions that people, everyday people are interested in. They love history, but, you know, they're they're willing to have an intelligent conversation about George Washington, but yeah. they probably don't care, you know what type of thread George or ribbon George Washington used to tie his cue together. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not, I'm just giving out like a, yeah. an extreme example, but you know, it's those kinds of minute debates that people are not interested in. Yeah. So by doing the public history work, it helps me connect with people. So it, it saves me for myself because I like to get caught up in those minutia arguments. Um, so it helps me figure out what do they know? What are they interested in? The minutia things t that does tend to overwhelm some people. Uh, I remember yeah. I had a class with uh, the the late Don Higginbotham. I don't know whether you, he's a he was a George Washington scholar. He spent you know forty years writing various books about George Washington. And uh, I remember one class he asked us. This was in graduate school. If if you know we'd all been if any of us had been to Mount Vernon, and of course all of us had been to Mount Vernon, so we. Said yes, we've been to Mount Vernon, and they said, "Well, then of course you'll remember the painting on the second story landing." We're like, "No, we have no idea what the hell the painting was on the second story landing," you know, and and it's those kinds of details that that he assumes that everybody is going to remember, and sometimes that gets people turned off from uh, the kind of history that academics do. And I'm not sure most academics are that interested in the painting on the second story landing. But, uh, <laughs> it turns out it was Lawrence Washington. That's the trivia. Uh, point for the day. Um, oh. <laughs> there was a very important point that Don was trying to make when he said that. I'm not quite sure what it was. Um, it is there's been some debate recently about whether blogging, I guess, podcasting w would fit into this same sort of mold. Is, whether blogging and, and this other kinds of sort of social outreach and, and social and, and public history, whether that counts as scholarship or not. I was curious what you thought about podcasting, whether that's a form of scholarship? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it is. I, I think it's part of scholarship, you know, at least the way that I'm doing it. It's part of scholarship in that people have taken, you know, these great scholars have taken the time to research, you know, what gay marriage was like in early America, or how do we remember the founding fathers by, you know, using our ideals about sex, you know, and their relationships. Um, how do we make use those ideas to make them feel more um, real mm -hmm. to us? You know, all of these great projects. And yet when you go into the bookstore, if you were to browse the history shelves, who do you see? 
Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> and a bunch of journalists. And, and some of the journalists do a really good job yeah. and, and others don't. And, and those aren't history to me. There's great history being done that no one knows about because they get published with a small press um, that doesn't have the presence to get into a Barnes and Noble, which is like the only big bookstore left yeah. um, or featured in Amazon. And they just don't know about it, but there are plenty of people who would be interested about it. So I don't think scholarship ends with you researching and writing a book and moving on to the next topic. I think it really ends with creating and cultivating public outreach with it, bringing your research to people um, outside of the academy who are interested in it and then can use that information to learn about the past, figure out who they are, learn from mistakes of the past and, and ultimately create a, create a better future. Hmm. And so um, you've got, you know, this audience here that that's listening to, to Ben Franklin's world. Who do you envision is actually in the audience? Who's doing these 75,000 or so downloads? Well, I'm happy to say we're about at 85,000. Oh, 80, okay. Now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the show's going well and I have big goals for it. So I hope to increase that, but um, you know, they've been reaching out and originally I created the, the show for my ideal reader of my book and the ideal reader of my book. Um, she's totally fictional is an, <laughs> is a woman named Janet Watkins and she's, she's 22. She goes to SUNY Buffalo and she's a pre, she's a pre-med student and she happens to be a woman of color. Now, how do I make Janet Watkins who is, could be care less about history, care about history in a way that makes her connect with it. So it's not just about dead white men and women. It's talking about, Native Americans, African Americans, and all the different peoples who lived and created the American society that, that we live in today. So um, I wanted to, to help people like her get excited about history. I figured if I could do it to a tw for a 22-year-old young woman, I could do it for other people. Now, what I found is there are some academics listening to my show, which is great. Um, the show is not tailored for them at, at all. Um, we, my tech questions in some ways tend to be more general and informative um, than, you know, what sources did you use? We don't really talk about sources. Um, but it's also people who, who teach history in schools and home at home school. Mm -hmm. They're looking for information and that surprised me. I hadn't thought about them as an audience. There are people who are just interested in history. They, they love history and they say, I have this awful commute and I, I, I take an episode <laughs> or two of yours and I fill that time. Yeah. You know, and I think podcasting is a great way to convey history. You know, we live in changing times and I am not saying the book is dead. I love the book. I think we should still write books, but people are consuming a lot in short blog articles mm -hmm. and they are consuming a lot of podcasts and the podcasts are increasing and why are they increasing companies are reducing the barrier um ford uh, audi all these car manufacturers are starting to put stitcher itunes google play apps right in the dashboards of their cars so you can download podcast episodes while you're driving it's um in our productivity obsessed society it is a way to productively use time that you couldn't normally be productive in, like sitting in your car, sure. running, walking the dog, or in my case, walking to and from the library to use the microfilm reader. Um, so I think it's a great way to talk about history. Um, so I'm hearing from people that I, I just never really thought that I'd hear about. Women, middle-aged men, young men, um, 
I haven't heard from any students yet, but one teacher contacted me and he said, how can I get you into my seventh grade classroom? Uh, we're still figuring that out. You know, I never really thought I'd be talking to seventh graders, but if that happens, you know, that's great. Maybe we can get them while they're young, you know, get them excited about history while they're young. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad the book isn't dead because you, you, you talk occasionally in the, in the show about your, uh, you know, your dissertation coming, which is obviously going to become a book before too long. Um, and, and you did a very interesting thing. You went to California to study New York and New England. Um, how did that, how did that come about? I, um, I was looking at grad schools and like my, my true Yankee self, I was looking, I went to Penn state for undergrad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was looking to stay in the Northeast and I was looking at all these schools in the Northeast and Amy Greenberg at Penn State, who's a fantastic professor uh, and scholar, she said to me, you know, you really should look at the West Coast. And she was from California. And I said, study early American history on the West Coast. Are you crazy? And she's like, no, really, you know, Jack Rakoff's out there, Alan Taylor. And I'm like, Alan Taylor, like he just won the Pulitzer Prize for William Cooperstown not too long ago. And so I, you know, I was like, all right, you know, I'll look, I'll bite. So I looked and uh, I was really interested in Alan's work. And I said, there's no way I'm going to get into to study with Alan Taylor. So I sent my application and my undergraduate advisor, the late William Pensack, who was a fantastic scholar and human being, he did all he could to help me get into all the schools I applied. I wrote this overzealous thesis, honors thesis on the Bunker Hill Monument that turned out to be like 250 pages because I just oh, couldn't geez. stop researching. Um, you know, we mailed it to all these people I wanted to study with. And uh, I was very surprised when I got the email. It was an acceptance email before I received the packet of, you know, you've been studied to, you know, accepted to UC Davis. And at that point, I hadn't really considered studying history in California. Um, but I went out to, to meet with Alan and um, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic guy and he's from Maine. Mm -hmm. And I understand Maine because I grew up with people like him, you know, growing up in New Hampshire, but he has a very Maine demeanor. He considers everything carefully before he says it. He has a very dry sense of humor. Um, and that freaks Californians out. Like they never know what to make of, of him because, you know, there's something about the, the culture out there that they tend to be more open and free going with their thoughts. And mm -hmm. um, it's just different. Um, but I understood it. And he made me feel comfortable with the idea that I could study, you know, early American history in California. So I was like, all right, I'd be crazy not to go. And they offered me a full funding package. So, you know, I decided I'd go out to California and I really thought I was going to study a New England topic. I was New England obsessed, uh, like every good Yankee. I, I think the world revolves around Boston. It's the center of the universe, um, the hub. But when I got to school about a weekend, you know, Alan was, he's like, so how are you adjusting to life in California? And I said it to Alan. I said, I just don't get it, Alan. I got this question all the time at the park service, but my new friends here in California keep asking me kind of where New Hampshire is. Uh, and then they'd be like <laughs> New England. And they're like, you'd say New England and they'd be like New York. And I'm like, why does everybody think that New York is part of New England? Because, you know, as a Yankee, I'm offended by that. New York is totally different, not part of New England. <laughs> And he said, I think he said, oh, this is how I'm going to get her off the New England high horse. Uh, but he and said, get her That's into a, New York. Okay. Yeah. He says, this is a very interesting question, Liz. I think you should look at Albany, New York. 
So for my very first summer after grad school, we're expected to start researching um, what will be our second year research project, which is, which is really ingenious, right? They basically have you research a dissertation topic to see if it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. So I started researching uh, New England, and I came across the papers in the New York State Library of Elkana Watson. And he was a pure, uh, a pilgrim descended uh, New Englander who grew up in Plymouth. And that guy was in the right place at the right time, you know, during the revolution, he was a factor for the Brown Brothers of Providence, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island. And they sent him down to South Carolina and then out to Europe. So he meets Benjamin Franklin. He's in parliament when King George III recognizes American independence. Um, he, he meets John Adams, like he knows all these people. And then after the war, he comes back to the, to the United States and he decides he's gonna look for the next great opportunity and he sees it in Albany. So he's this New Englander, this Yankee migrant in Albany. And what he turned me on to is the fact that the reason why people think that New York is like New England is because most of the state was settled by New Englanders. Mm -hmm. After the revolution, 700 to 800,000 New Englanders migrate to New York state because during the war for independence, they saw all this great land, uh, land that would make great farms and nobody was living on it. I mean, we know that the Native Americans were living on it, um, but they didn't view the Native Americans as really living on the land. Um, so they just they just flocked to places like Cooperstown, New York, in droves and established new New England towns there. Um, but what makes Albany interesting and why it's a decade later and I'm still on this project is these established communities on the Hudson River Valley, they are inundated with New Englanders. Mm -hmm. Men like Alcana Watson will tell you that the Yankees just took it all over and improved it. And it's this new New England town, but that's not how it happened. Uh, the New England migration affected towns, you know, long established towns with Dutch descent very differently um, than going out into the wilderness, establishing new New England towns. So that is still the book I'm, I'm, I'm working on, but that's how the project came to be. And now I've totally forgotten what your original question was. I was just curious <laughs> how, how you get off, you, know, you start a project like that, you know, uh, being a New Englander going to California. Uh, and I think, you know, Alan Taylor is, is really the, you know, critical link in doing that. I guess he's left UC Davis now and gone to the University of Virginia, if I recall correctly. Yes, he's now the Thomas Jefferson Chair of American History at the University of Virginia. It's not a bad um, title. Yeah, no, he seems really happy with the position, and I'm excited because now he's back on the East Coast, so maybe I'll get to see him more than once or twice a year. Well, so what's then on the agenda uh, for the future of Ben Franklin world now that you've uh, sort of built it up over the past uh, you know, three or four months? Well, how, how do you think the show is going to look like in the future? I think it's going to look very similar uh, in that <clears throat> I'm going to continue to produce high quality content. I'm going to um, find historians that have subjects that interest me that I think will interest others. I try to make the show well-rounded. So, I mean, admittedly, I'm not interested in all aspects of early American history. No. Um, some subjects interest me more than others. Um, but I will present those subjects because I think they do need to be presented and just because they don't interest me they'll interest someone else um, so I'm still going to find scholars to talk you know to talk about their their research with uh, the public and um, I hope it grows I want to reach as many people as possible so I'm going to work hard to figure out ways that I can promote the show 
um, and, and bring it to the notice of people who may not be familiar with it. And I'd also like to add an ask and historian component to the show where people can either phone in or email their early American history questions. And if I can't answer them, I'm sure I can find a scholar who can. Um, and, you know, a segment like that will not only help dispel myths and answer questions that people really have, mm. but will hopefully connect uh, more scholars, more of our colleagues with people who are interested in history. Yeah, because I, I noticed you had, you had had that ask, ask a historian uh, feature mentioned in a couple of the shows and, and on the on the website. And, you know, that's one of the, the hard parts about podcasting is you don't really know exactly what your uh, audience is, is getting out of, 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 of listening to you and what questions they have and, and, you know, where they are intellectually with the, with what you're putting out there. And there's, there's, it's really sort of a, often a sort of one way dynamic. Um, have you gotten any questions yet for that? Or is that something that's uh, still yeah. working on persuading your audience? I'm still persuading my audience, but they have been really good. You know, I've now taken to posting on Facebook. I've created a community for listeners and posting on Twitter, you know, hey, I'm preparing interview questions for, and this, you know, I'm preparing an interview for Kyle Baltice of uh, four, four steeples over the city streets. And I said, okay, well, what do you, what would you like to know about, you know, religious history in New York City, you know, between the 1780s and 1850s? You know, and people would email me questions about life in New York City or, you know, going to church. Um, I also have an interview coming up with Gene Tesdall. He's at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. And in addition to being a history professor who studies um, smuggling between Albany and Montreal between 1700 and 1754, he all, he's also into living history. So I will drag Tim, like this summer, I dragged Tim to coastal Canada so we could go to Fortress Louisbourg. We went to Quebec so we could see the Plains of Abraham. Gene connects with history by dressing up as a French and Indian war, uh, Coureur de Bois, the French fur yeah. trader. And he will go and canoe in birch bark canoes and sleep in sub-zero temperatures with colonial, traditional colonial period clothing. And I think it's both great and nuts at the same time. <laughs> and then people were nuts, but okay. People were really interested. You know, I got a, a lot of questions last night. Okay, well, you know, did you know the fur traders live longer than people uh, who lived in the city uh, or not? You know, did what did they eat? You know, what was their life like? Um, what kind of furs were they trading? Um, you know, it was stuff that I just hadn't thought of, you know, I had plenty of questions, but these were, these were questions I hadn't thought of. Um, so hopefully we'll get Gene to an answer some of those as well. Well, uh, you know, thank you so much, Liz, for, for being on, on the show. And I think I know you have to head off to the archive soon. I know the, the microfilm reader is calling to you and, uh, I hope the snow, uh, get, getting to the archives doesn't pr prove to be too much of a barrier, but thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> So that was my conversation with Liz Covart. Uh, if you're interested in listening to her podcast, and I highly recommend that you do, uh, you can find that at benfranklinsworld.com. It's also on iTunes and all other uh, podcasting venues. Uh, you can also uh, visit Liz's personal website at elizabethcovart.com, and she also tweets very regularly at, at Liz Covart. If you have any questions or comments for me about uh, this podcast, you can email me 
at AmericanHistoryUntucked.gmail.com uh, or visit our website, AmericanHistoryUntucked at blogspot.com. Uh, if you could leave a review for the show on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, and while you're on iTunes, definitely download Liz's podcast. Till next time, I'm David Silkenet. <laughs>